please turn to Matthew and chapter 9, where we're going to pick up the gospel according to Matthew. Anyone who has read from the, from the gospels like this, um, you start to begin not to be so surprised when the descriptions turn to the extraordinary things that Jesus was doing, like Mandy just read out. You could call it something like miracle fatigue as you read through the Gospels. We hear another one and another one. And this is, of course, the third cycle of very extraordinary miracles in this section of Matthew. You're not so surprised until you ask a question like this. How does Matthew's description of Jesus' interactions with people, how does it help me understand who He is, better understand? How does this help me decide how I'll respond to Jesus? How can this help me reframe my current circumstances? That's the question I want you to think about at the start here. How do Matthew's descriptions of Jesus' interactions with these people how do they help me understand who He is, help me decide how to respond, and help reframe my circumstances? I want you to ask that question as we read Matthew 9 today. I want you to ask it as someone who's already been compelled to follow Him, a Christian. And I want you to ask it as someone who's still considering your response. Ask that question, and then as you ask it for the next few minutes, I want you to track with the way Jesus interacts with some very needy and very desperate people. Here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that Jesus interacts with extraordinary power and extraordinary compassion. Watch for those two things. Extraordinary power, extraordinary compassion, as Jesus meets some ordinary people with terrible, terrible conditions and problems. Here's the first thing. Firstly, Matthew outlines how two women meet Jesus who gives healing and life, verses 18 to 26. So we've got two women, meet Jesus, who gives healing and life. Pick this up in verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Well, here's the first woman. We learn well, she's just a child, isn't she? And it's actually her father who meets Jesus first. He's a ruler, verse 18, and as Mark and Luke, the other gospel writers, fill in, he's probably a synagogue ruler, Jairus. Now, you get the emotional intensity, though, don't you? Jairus' daughter has died, and yet here this desperate man asks Jesus to come and touch her and she will live. Look at, look at what he says. Touch her. Lay your hand on her, verse 18, and she'll live. It's quite an assumption, isn't it? He's not asking Jesus to do the kind of healing we've been watching him doing already here in these chapters. No, this is new territory for Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, who has been describing that he was the start of something new. Do you remember the new wineskins? New wine, fresh wineskins, and now we're on new territory with Jesus, something new. And extraordinarily, look at verse 19, he gets up and he follows this ruler who has shown a, a remarkable faith in what Jesus could do. 
There's the first glimpse, though, of the compassion to this grieving father. What does Jesus do? Well, he follows. He goes with him to see where the daughter is. But there's an interruption. And now here's the second, this time an older woman. Look from verse 20. And behold, Matthew tells us, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, we don't have any insight from Matthew as to what the ruler was thinking when he approached Jesus. But Matthew does tell us about this long-afflicted woman, her thinking. Uh, Matthew tells us, first of all, that she's been bleeding, and that, of course, would have made her ceremonially um, unclean in their religious culture, and therefore isolated on her own. That, in addition to being, well, devastatingly um, having this condition on her physically. But here's her thinking. Look at verse 21. She said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. Well, a grieving father has recognized something extraordinary in Jesus and so asked him to touch his daughter who has died. And this suffering woman has recognized it too. Something about Jesus. And so she takes matters into her own hands, literally. And she touches him, touches his garment. Again, the compelling thing has to be Jesus' response to her. Read it, verse 22. We read, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. You see it, don't you? The compassion. Compassion that has Jesus, the teacher, say, Take heart. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And he gives her the healing that she has longed for for years. And so now we're, we're witness as Jesus' compassion comes through here. And we get another look at his power, don't we? Remember that this is power not just to comfort a sick woman. I mean, that, that will be compassionate enough, but there's power here. He's not just giving a few kind words in a bad situation. No, no, he's got the power to heal her mightily, instantly, completely. Extraordinary power indeed. And as Jesus interacts with people with this kind of extraordinary power, he's also got this extraordinary compassion, and they're both here all the time. Now, then he gets back on his way. So that's the interruption. Read from verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Funeral rituals are now in full operation. Mourners have gathered, flute players, as would have been their custom. So much that Jesus' instructions to, to go away, as well as his incredible comment that the dead girl is only sleeping. Well, they're laughable, aren't they? Well, the crowd thought so. And yet with one short interaction. And remember, Matthew is, is running through this quite quickly. It's very concise, isn't it? He, Matthew's getting us here very, very fast, faster than Mark or Luke. With one short interaction with this girl, Jesus again extends the compassion he's already shown to her father. More this time, he extends extraordinary power as he simply touches 
her hand. Look at verse 25. For when the crowd had been put outside, the laughing crowd, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Well, this district had heard some headlines, hadn't it? The girl who was dead is now alive because Jesus touched her. Now, Matthew's describing something very plainly here. And we're seeing it, aren't we? There's stunning compassion and again, the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who as he encounters people with the most overwhelming and despairing of problems, you can't get worse than death, can you? He can override those conditions. Even death itself is no match for Jesus' power and authority. Now, to those of us asking the question that we posed at the start, how does this help me understand who he is? How does this in Matthew 9, help me decide how I'll respond to him? How does this reframe my current circumstances? Well, think about it. This report is now circulating in our district too. And as the song we sometimes sing puts it so well, remember the song we sometimes sing with the children and we do the actions? Jesus is strong and kind. Jesus strong and kind. He has remarkable authority, even when confronted with the most debilitating of problems. And he's kind. He's reaching out to help those in pain and difficulty. Think about it. To overwhelmed and desperately needy people, Jesus' simple touch brings new healing and new life. That's remarkable, isn't it? And of course, the other thing you'll have picked up here in Matthew 9 is the position of faith in all of this. Yes, there's new healing and new life, but what about faith? And I would say as well, I mean, look at it. It's faith that wasn't without its flaws. For example, for the woman, her faith was a bit mixed up, wasn't it, with a superstition? If I just touch his clothes, she thought. That's a bit superstitious. I'll touch the the good guy's clothes, and I'll get healed. There's a superstition, and yet notice where her faith was located. Notice that position of her faith that was definitive, both for the synagogue ruler and his daughter, and for the woman. Both of them had faith in Jesus, and he picks up on it. Look at verse 22. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Extraordinary compassion, extraordinary power, and that's who Jesus is. Jesus, strong and kind. And then Matthew writes about these broken, desperate people putting their faith in him, Jesus, even though that faith is often a bit mixed up. Still the location is there, isn't it? In Jesus Christ. How many of us are dealing with Despairing problems, if I could put it like that. Problems that are quite literally burning holes in your hearts and your minds. Put your faith in Jesus, who not only has compassion, kindness, but also has power to save. And so we shouldn't miss this with miracle fatigue in Matthew 9. No way. Instead, there appears to be here a deliberate invitation to make the right response to him. What's that? Put your faith in him. Locate your faith in Jesus Christ. And whatever your circumstances, keep locating your faith here 
with him, the only one who has ultimate power to save. And even those circumstances, remember the last part of that question we posed, even those circumstances are reframed by the one with such compassion and power and a touch that can make more than a difference. Two women met Jesus. He gave healing and life. And in the very next episode, it's two men this time who meet Jesus, who gives them sight. So we've had these two women, and now two men, and Jesus gives them sight. Have a look from verse 27 of chapter 9. We'll read this account just as it is in this little paragraph. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. They went away and spread his fame through all that district. Well, here's another thing for the district to talk about. But again, Matthew explains things so concisely. Just a couple of lines here. But there are similar things going on that we saw in the earlier account from verse 18. From the crowd come these two men who couldn't see Jesus. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? How did they know he was there? Well, there must have been a commotion after he leaves the house of the the formerly dead girl. And suddenly from the crowd, these two men come out. They couldn't see, but what did they see? It's extraordinary that title they use, isn't it? Son of David. It's like they see something of the Messiah, son of David. The Old Testament prophecies promising one in the line of David, son of David. And they ask for his help. They say, have mercy on us, son of David. And so they follow and they go in after him into the house. Son of David, they had an expectation of a Messiah. And and that expectation would have been very real in the culture, in the district, if you like. As Jesus heals and does these extraordinary things and the news goes viral in the district, well, that was a district that knew and was looking for a Messiah. And according to the prophets, what was the Messiah going to do? Well, you can check this out on Isaiah chapter 35. But you know what the Messiah would do when he arrived? He would do things like giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He would make people who couldn't walk able to walk again. Now think of those two men who couldn't see. They ask Jesus for mercy. They say, have mercy on us because they know. They see something in Jesus that matches that Messiah that they've heard about. Had they located their faith in the right place? Well, yes. That's the answer to Jesus' very direct question here. Look back at that question in this little paragraph. Do you believe, Jesus asked them. That's very direct, isn't it? It's almost like a catechism question. Jesus says, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Jesus touches their eyes. And then acknowledging their faith in him, Jesus gives them their sight. Two men meet Jesus who gives them their sight. The place of faith, no doubt imperfect. They couldn't see, could they? And no doubt hadn't seen the whole picture, but they knew that this man was different. 
and they came to him and asked him for mercy. They put their faith in him. That's who he is. He's the one who restores sight. That's who he is. He's got this authority over the most devastating of conditions. Well, they'd either heard of it uh, from the, the dead girl now alive. They may have heard what else had been going on. But how should we respond? We're hearing it too in this district. How are the circumstances and conditions of our lives? Think about them. Think about your life. How are those things reframed by this Jesus? It's no exaggeration to say that this changes everything. Everything. And today we're reminded as we sit here from God's word of the one that God sent to save us. And for those of us following already, we're asking those questions too, aren't we? You have located your faith, however patchy and imperfect it might feel from time to time. If you're following Christ, you have located your faith in the right place. That's where our faith is, in Christ. And if your faith is in Christ, you have located it in the right place. And if you're not sure, well, again, here's the invitation to follow him, to say, well, like these blind men, yes, Lord, I believe. I have faith. I believe the one with extraordinary compassion and extraordinary power. Two women met Jesus who gave healing and life. Two men met Jesus and he gave them sight. Then the last couple of verses in this section articulate this They articulate two spoken responses as Jesus gives a mute man his voice. Two spoken responses. They're recorded here in inverted commas. This is speech. And they're recorded as Jesus gives a mute man his voice. There's something happening in this district, isn't there? And now we get a record from Matthew of the response. Have a look at it. And there's real irony, isn't there, in these couple of verses from verses 32 to 34. We'll read them in a second. In verse 32, there's a man who can't speak. Have a look at it. They were going away. Behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute. He can't speak. He was brought to him. But then in verses 33 and 34, what have we got? We've got two spoken responses to Jesus. Take a look. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Like before, like Here's another man with a terrible condition, isn't it? He can't speak. But there's more behind it, isn't there? It's not just that he can't speak. Matthew tells us and describes what's written here as demon oppression, evil. There's something behind that inability to speak that's really quite awful, quite frightening even. But not for Jesus. He simply restores him. Again, and it's truncated now, isn't it? This time even smaller than the last two accounts. The large account of the women with that interruption and the two women. The smaller account of the two men. And now we've got one man. And quite simply we're told, Jesus heals him. He can speak. 
the man by the end of verse 33 or verse 32 or verse, yeah, it's start of verse 33. He's speaking. The mute man spoke. That's Jesus, isn't it? Extraordinary power, extraordinary compassion. And then Matthew records two responses. What are they? How would you describe what the the crowd of the district said? What would you say about verse 33? And the crowds marveled, saying what? Never was anything like this seen in Israel. How would you describe that? If you can see it. Yes, I can just see it. Verse 33, amazement. That's one response in the district. Is there amazement in this room as we read about Jesus? What's the other response? Have a look at verse 34. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. How would you categorize that? Cynical opposition. Opposition that Matthew will record building and building and building as we get to the cross. What's your response to Jesus? This invitation to faith or to keep locating the faith at Jesus? Amazement? Cynical opposition? There were big crowds here, weren't there? Huge crowds. And yet, we only ever hear of a few people responding to Jesus. Certainly, many in the crowds had seen marvelous things, and they walked away. Cynically, perhaps, they they took the line of the Pharisees. But what's your response? Is life tough at the moment? Think about your life. Well, Matthew's gospel introduces us to whatever our conditions, whatever our circumstances, to, to the one with extraordinary power and extraordinary compassion. And here's the good news. It's that salvation is found in Jesus Christ, the one who ultimately brings life from death. And we said that Jesus facing this kind of opposition in 34, he's on his way to the cross. Why? Well, Matthew's on the way to explain the bigger story that these miracle healings are only just a foreshadow of. As Jesus went to die on the cross, do you know what he did? He finally announced and sealed the death of death itself. No doubt that dead girl raised died again. But as Jesus died on the cross, he announced an end to death itself. Extraordinary compassion for people in our circumstances. Extraordinary power. He came after all, Matthew tells us, chapter 1, to save his people from their sins. But how will we respond? With faith? Faith that's not measured in its quantity, big faith or little faith, or measured in its untangled quality, but simply by location. That's the faith, isn't it? Where is it? In Christ and Christ alone. Our last song will pick this up because Christians can sing of this because Christ is our hope in life and death. And then the chorus, sing hallelujah, praise God. Because as people, even in the face of suffering and death, as we are, we know and we can know the ultimate compassionate and powerful Savior. That's the invitation for you. Have faith in Christ. Have faith in Jesus. Well, perhaps the musicians would lead us in that song. I'm just going to pray 
as we begin to sing. But Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your compassion in the Lord Jesus, but also that extraordinary power. Would it not wash over us as, as if we've heard it all before? But would we be asking those questions? How should I respond? Would you give us the, the sight to be able to, to go to Jesus and put our faith there? Would you give us the voice to be able to sing with the writer of this song, that Christ is my hope and life and death. Father, would you give us new life in Christ as we entrust him with our most debilitating condition and go to him with our, our death, our sin, and receive life, an eternal life at that. Father, thanks for your word. May it echo in our minds and hearts this week as we respond and keep responding to it. We pray this in the mighty name, the powerful name, the compassionate name of Jesus Christ. Amen.